A Call Confessions is brought to you commercial-free by the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click donate to keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. In December 1973, Claude Voriel Holm was visited by extraterrestrials at a volcanic crater in France. Vorielhone had been a singer and sports journalist with aspirations to become a race car driver. He called these extraterrestrials the Elohim, and they called him Rael, having selected him from all of humanity to pass on their message. The Elohim were a team of highly advanced scientists who had arrived on Earth to create the human race as a kind of experiment. Vorielhone quit the race car magazine he'd founded, Autopop, in order to devote himself to spreading the word of the Elohim through the publication of his book, Le Livre qui dit la vérité, the book that tells the truth. Also through the establishment of an organization that would go on to become the International Raelian Movement. According to Rael, all of the events of the Bible, as well as most other religious texts, explain the work of the Elohim. Yahweh was, in fact, an extraterrestrial arrived on Earth to create life. On his home planet, Yahweh and his fellow scientists were plagued by a populace concerned about the ethics of such experimentation, and possibly the contamination of their home planet. And so the scientists went to another planet to carry out their investigations this planet. Their message to Rael is that he should spread the news of humanity's misinterpretation of their labors, promote what they called a geniocracy or rule by the most intelligent in society, and establish a one-world government and language and currency to bring the people of Earth together. In a second visit with the Elohim in 1975, Rael met Jesus Moses, Elijah, Buddha, and Muhammad, who had all been rendered immortal through a process of cloning on a separate planet. The Elohim instructed Rael that the good people of Earth would be similarly cloned. Also, the wicked people would be cloned, but in order to punish them. The Raelians currently believe that the Elohim's advanced supercomputers are, as we speak, recording our DNA, our personalities, and all aspects of our identities. They will eventually use this information to resurrect the dead and carry out a mass judgment in a technologized version of the end of days. When you said Raelians, my first thought was, wow, rad aliens. But then you started talking about cloning, and that really turned me off. We're about to get our boobs out. Oh, I'm turned back on. The Raelians have been negotiating for more than a decade to create an embassy to welcome the Elohim to Earth and establish regular contact between humans and their creators, to usher in the end of days. They had hoped to build the embassy in Jerusalem, but the Israelis objected in part because of the Raelians' official symbol, a swastika at the center of a Star of David. Ouch! Yes, the ultimate combination, right? Uh, This represents to the Raelians a merging of Eastern and Western traditions, the swastika after all being a Hindu and Buddhist symbol, and the Star of David being a symbol of the religions of one god. So, you know, point taken. I guess they're not wrong. No, I'm not. (laughs) Just have to skip a whole bunch of the middle of the 20th century, and and that works out. Uh, So... 
the <laughs> the Raelians believe that the Jewish people are a blend of Elohim and human, which is unlike any of the other races on Earth, and this is why the Elohim would prefer to be close to their half-engineered, half-biological children when they return. So that's why Israel is, is the prime spot for the embassy. They considered removing the swastika, but the Israelis were like, we don't care, you're not having an embassy here. According to uh, Raelian guide Kobe Drory, the government of Lebanon offered to host the embassy, for real, but negotiations fell apart when the Raelians again refused to keep their symbol off of the building. Although some of our listeners may be hearing about the Raelians for the first time, they have been relatively good at creating publicity stunts and attracting popular interest. Speaking of boobs, Vorilhone actually raced cars to raise awareness of the movement, including appearances at the 1999 BF Goodrich Tires Trans Am Series and the 2000 Speed Vision GT Championship. That's right, a UFO cult leader raced in not one, but two car races. Probably should have kept with that. <laughs> I don't. Uh, he didn't finish too bad. Uh, they've protested for women's right to go topless. Here we are with Ooh, females wearing pasties, bearing those boobs. You got to put your pasties on, but we can parade across America with our tatas out. With a general program of sexual liberation, they've also fought against the Catholic Church's historical objection to contraceptives. When the church rejected condom vending machines, the Raelians distributed 10,000 condoms to high school students in Montreal, Quebec. Wow. That's useful, though. <laughs> right? <laughs> condom vending machines? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. The, the Canadians, to me especially in Quebec, they're way ahead of the game. I mean, technically, we have those. But the Catholic Church was like, no, you're not doing that in Montreal. So Voyalon was like, okay, we'll just give them out. Yeah. To high school students. All this is mostly funded by Japanese businessmen, by the way. Mm. Just so you're aware. Mm. They've also openly advocated for highly controversial experiments in cloning. So whenever we come out with a GMO corn or something, or we start cloning, they're like, yeah, clone some corn and sheep and stuff. And everyone else is like, that makes me feel weird. Here's your contraceptive. Now cloning. <laughs> now clone. <laughs> So the question for us today is, ready for this? Where do these ideas come from? And how do they contribute to our understanding of humanity's obsession with the end of the world? Now, I'm not going to be able to get into the history of toplessness. I think we can all sort of just work that through. One day there was a woman who took her shirt off. But uh, we are going to have to talk a history of these extraterrestrial theories, where those come from. So no religious movement drops out of the sky fully formed not even Rael's. And the Raelians are like every other new religious movement before them in that they have offered up a system of beliefs that their adherents have been willing to commit to as a kind of deep governing philosophy that's based on earlier ideas. While we might disagree or find some of their practices strange, the fact that anyone, let alone the tens of thousands, which is not huge, but still nothing to sneeze at, the tens of thousands of people who call themselves Raelians would believe in these things means that there is something deeper at work here than a short history or articulation of their core beliefs, which I've just given you, can really fully capture. The Raelians are but one iteration of a grander theory that has, at the very least, permeated the History Channel, if not actual history. 
there's a big difference between those these days. Used to be that the History Channel uh, had some history on it, but now it's mostly just aliens. So we're going to figure out what that's all about and where it comes from this very day. Today we're talking about the belief that extraterrestrials, or UFO knots, as they're sometimes called in the literature of new religious movements, bookend human history. That is to say they are at the beginning of time, and they will return to usher in the end of time. Reptilians. My name is Rob C. Thompson, Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors and Doctor of Things Occult, specifically, I think, new religious movements and and occult movements. I do spend a lot of time on those, albeit not alien ones, so I gotta put that caveat in there. Uh, I'm joined, as usual, by Olivia Litterall, our Grand Master. We are going to Sumeria. Uh, right? Yes, we are going to Samaria. Right we're also going out beyond the limits of Pluto. Well, how are we going to book that flight? We're doing it all. We're doing it all. Okay. All in a day. That's the magic of podcasting. We've got Bree Litterall, expert on things ancient. Hey. <laughs> That's all she needs to say to let us know she's here. <laughs> and uh, Johnny Cook, our patron progenitor. Hello. All right, then. People of few words today. What's going on over there? They've been uh, working on a show over at the Performing Arts Center. They're a little worn down, I think. So much lighting equipment. So much. And puppets. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about aliens. Nothing like hours and hours of staring at puppets to really shut you up. Oh, I thought you were going to say get you in the mood for aliens. Both. Yeah. We, the members of the, the Secret, Secret Order, Order of Alchemical Actors, do, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Open up them plugs. Plug, plug, plug. All right, we're a little, we're pre-recorded here, so uh, all our new patrons are going to have to wait till our next episode. Uh, we're actually putting this up in, uh, J- in December, well, yeah. uh, but here you are listening in January. Uh, so it'll be the next episode that we'll do our shout-outs to our newest patrons. Uh, but we do want to let you know that we are now four episodes deep as far as uh, original content on the Patreon. That's four whole episodes. You're missing out. That only our patrons can hear. We've got three episodes on the Devil's Music, and we have just posted an episode on Ragnarok, uh, so it, for any dollar amount, you too can go on over to the Patreon. Anything. And enjoy. Any dollar amount, we uh, give you access to those bonus episodes, and then as you raise your dollar level, we give more stuff. More and more stuff. Uh, also, uh, we want to let you know that... Uh, we have merch. We have merch. We have merch, 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 merch. Um, <laughs> so if you go on occultconfessions.com, you can find our merch. Um, we've got t-shirts right now. Eventually, I'd like to have more than t-shirts, but you guys got to help me get rid of all these t-shirts to convince Rob. And our final pledge, uh, pledge, plug, 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 post pledge. Final plug. Final plug for the day uh, is to check out our various social media outlets because... Uh, I have already figured out, I've planned out what our upcoming year is going to look like. And the only place to get a preview of what we have in store for us in our next four semesters, we publish uh, four four Don't seasons, four terms mm. of, of occult action, you got to go on that social media. So go check us out. We got Twitter, we got Instagram, and we got Facebook. But I don't know who goes on our Facebook. We got the YouTubes as well now. And we got YouTube now. Yeah. Is, Is that it social media? Just media. It'll be up. 
Okay. It'll be up. All I right. feel it. There'll be something up there. In my soul. Let's close up those plugs. Plug, plug, plug. The Raelians are the religious expression of a metaphysical theory that was ascendant in the 1970s. And Rael was very likely inspired not only by the Elohim, but a popular craze for this kind of thinking, which had picked up steam in both America and Europe in the late 1960s. 60s and 70s, just prime paranormal time. Because everyone's on drugs. <laughs> you got all kinds of like haunted houses in the 60s and no, 70s. Right, you got yeah. serial killers all over the place. It's a wild time to be alive. A lot of the horror movies that are based off of like paranormal that we see now. They yeah, all happen, 60s so. and 70s. Uh, also aliens. So this actually starts in the 50s, as all good things that happen in the 60s and 70s do. <laughs> Russian-American Emanuel Velenovsky publishes his book World or Worlds in Collision. This happens in 1950, and it sets up a project uh, that would be reiterated in many ways many times over. And that project is to connect ancient religious texts and folklore to intergalactic events. I would like that job, please. <laughs> well, here you are, really. Welcome. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the team. Nice. So, Velenovsky claimed that celestial near collisions with Venus and Mars seriously altered the Earth's orbit and so affected our planet's ancient people that they translated the behavior of these planets into their sacred books. But... Velenovsky did not make the specific claim for extraterrestrials. That would wait for pop scientist Carl Sagan, who, interestingly, argued against Velenovsky's planetary collision theories on his popular 1970s PBS series, Cosmos, but then went on to essentially put an idea out in the ether that would jam this intergalactic theory to the nth degree. The theory that ancient people made contact with extraterrestrials surfaced in a chapter of Carl Sagan and I.S. Shklovsky's there it is, Intelligent Life in the Universe. And the year for that book was 1966. And it was popularized, uh, actually, by the German hotelier Eric von Daniken in his Chariots of the Gods? Question mark? That's in the title. He has a question mark in the oh, title. Oh, I thought you were no, it's, questioning. It's char I've been thinking about how to pronounce it. Like, I have to pronounce this properly as going into this. Chariots of the, the gods? gods? That seems right. And that was in 1968. While influential, uh, Von Doniken is not someone we're going to actually spend much time with today because he's not the best spokesman for this theory or really any theory at all, because in addition to being an extraterrestrial enthusiast, he was also a con man. Oh, there it is. He forged records in order to take out $130,000 in loans, which he used, in fairness to him, uh, to pay for travel to research this book, Chariot of the Gods? Question uh, mark. And he was convicted on charges of embezzlement, fraud, and forgery. He wrote his second book, Gods from Outer Space, from prison. Oh, my God. Yeah, so he was way committed. He really was an enthusiast. Because <laughs> that's literally how you said it just now. So I'm, I like I'm gonna... pronouncing it that way. Yeah, you, you do actually pronounce it yeah. frequently on Hey, you, right you can go with enthusiast, but he's an enthusiast. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Something seems right about that. Yeah, there are certain people who get the gentler pronunciation. 
Monsieur von Daniken, not so much. So uh, who we're actually going to spend our time with today, mostly, is a guy by the name of Zechariah Sitchin. Uh, And he's actually far more credible, at least on the surface. And he offers arguably the most thoughtful defense of these various ideas about extraterrestrials and interplanetary collisions and ancient mythology. And this he does in his Earth Chronicles series, which went to, I believe, six books. Sitchin was born in the Soviet Union in 1920 and immigrated first to what is today Israel, studied economics at the University of London, and moved to the United States in 1952. In Israel, he spent time visiting archaeological digs and learning Sumerian. In 1976, he published The Twelfth Planet, the first in a series that would go on to seven books, oh, sorry, covering several thousand pages. I just read the beginning and the end of it. You can't read all seven. You can, but why would you want to? That seems like a lot. It was a lot. You read some of it to my child. I didn't. She really enjoyed it. I'm sorry to hear that. Sitchin's theory rehearses the now relatively... She's young. She doesn't know any better. She's easily impressed. It's only going to get more and more. Her standards for for quality scholarship will only get higher from here. She's a hungry caterpillar. (laughs) Right. What? Or the end of the world. What? Who proved to me that the caterpillar was hungry? What is your documentary evidence? How many sources are you using? In order to prove the hunger of this caterpillar. Were you there? Do caterpillars even eat cake? Do they eat salami? I don't think so. Where are the sources? I want to see documentation. Sitchin's theory rehearses the now (laughs) relative... That really made you upset, Rob. It's ridiculous. Caterpillars could not eat a whole salami. That's what I'm saying about the book that drove me crazy reading (laughs) into your kid. It made no sense. You know what's clever, though? All the, d- the dots that they poke out are in the first two pages. If you open the book, you know, he's, he, he eats through everything. Oh, Yeah, it's real I clever. See. It's a clever little thing well, they good did. good for them. I have read it a hundred times. Uh, so, back to Sitchin. His theory rehearses the now relatively tired interpretation of Jacob's Ladder and Elijah's Ascension as the work of extraterrestrials. We won't get into it. See, for example, any episode on the History Channel about literally anything. They will bring this stuff up. That Elijah's wheel was a UFO, right? And Jacob's ladder was, Uf- you know, aliens going up and down in their spaceship. So he goes through that stuff. And we're going to... Bree's making such a face. You've never heard this stuff? No, there's a piercing called a Jacob's ladder. Well, that's, um, there's... Right. Really inappropriate. <laughs> that's part of the... Oh, why. where's that go? Is that really where that comes from? Where's well, that go? I think part of why they named it, not for the UFO reason, but for... What's the other reason? I'm confused. Like the For the Old Jacob's... Testament, they named this piercing? So. Where does it go? I don't know. Can you say it's, it? It's a, it's, a, it's a penis piercing. Ooh, ow. Well, because I think well, it's Jacob, like a... Yeah, I guess it like would a... make sense. If it was a I'm fairly Ruth's certain ladder, it's a, it would I'm be fairly a certain it's a penis oh, piercing. Oh, ow. Ah, uh, nope. <laughs> I don't want to think about it. Uh. Sitchin's version of events. Uh, so anyway, we're not going to go through the Jacob's Ladder thing. It's boring. So we're going to get to the interesting stuff. Sitchin's version of events starts with his theory that there is such a thing as a 12th planet. Sitchin points out the significance of the number 12 in Western culture. We have 12 months, for example, and count 1 to 12 before switching over to teen numbers. Now, this blew my mind. I'd never thought about this before, but it's actually pretty cool. All right, so let's just work this this counting thing through. Hang with me. 
The Greeks had a, a set pantheon of 12 major gods. They would kick some out in order to keep it 12 and add new ones. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus had 12 disciples, which theoretically was based on the 12 tribes of Israel. There's the 12 months. We divide our days into two sets of 12 hours. So now back to the counting with me. Now just think this through for a second. The argument goes that to honor the significance of the number 12, we don't switch to counting first teen, second teen, which is what we do when we get to 21, 22. These are the only two numbers that are like this in 1 to 100. Instead of going first teen, second teen, third teen, four teen, we gave these two numbers special names, 11 and 12, because the first 12 numbers all deserve their own special names. Do you see that? Isn't that I wild? I see it, yeah. Yeah, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? Oh, that really tickled me. Kind of neat. Do you not get this, Olivia? You're making a face. Is it that, or did someone that decided to create the names of the numbers just decide that 11 teen sounded stupid? It wouldn't be. It would be first teen, because it's 13. <laughs> or whatever 14. the hell. That first sounds teen? so... Well, because 21 is different. First teen 20... almost rolls off the tongue. First teen, second teen. I think it's interesting, but... I'd like to agree with Rob on this. <laughs> It's pretty cool. It is cool, though. Thank you, Zechariah Sitchin. So we are going to, like, you know, rip him up and down a little bit today, but he <laughs> so says some cool stuff. Let's pat him on the back real fast. He's a pretty smart guy. I mean, he learned Sumerian. He just has That's crazy. crazy ideas that aren't logical, but we're, we're going to get there. We'll take our time getting into this. So this uh, idea that 11, 12, right, are special, that 12 is special, leads Sitchin to conclude that there are 12 planets. But there are only eight planets, you might be saying. Nine, if you count Pluto. I do. You're right. You've got an excellent memory of the third grade, Olivia. Great. Uh, But Sitchin argues that ancient people also counted the sun and the moon in the list, giving us a total of 11. Brie, does that sound good to you? I think it sounds good. All right. I, I, but I've read other commentary on this that Sumerians would not have even been aware of planets past Jupiter. So the fact that they could get anywhere near 12 is incomprehensible. But that's neither here nor there. Let's pretend that they did know that there was a Pluto and a Uranus. Is that why 13 is such a bad number? Because it's past 12. Yeah. You got at it. Boy, you're just catching up here, aren't you? <laughs> Lagging along behind. Finally here. I don't know if I believe it. I'm just theorizing. The twelfth planet. So even if we count Pluto, let's assume the Sumerians somehow knew about Pluto, although evidence suggests that they did not know about anything past Jupiter. Let's assume that they knew about Saturn, Uranus, Pluto, Neptune, and they added them all in. Then we get to twelve. And the twelfth planet is the sacred planet that Sitchin wants us to learn about, because we we've never heard of this twelfth planet. We only know about Pluto, and we're not sure about that guy. So this 12th sure. guy, we're sure? You're sure? I'm very sure. I'm also sure about Pluto. So let's do astrological you. stuff with you guys. There. Hashtag justice for Pluto. I'm talking about the planet Marduk, sort of. Marduk, this is the 12th planet. Its name is Marduk, except that it's not the Wait, planet Marduk. Wait, is Marduk someone's name? It is. Uh, John? <laughs> comic book character, isn't it? I don't. Oh, no, you're, now you're out of my depth. Who, who's the comic book? What comic no, no, book? No, I think it's Marmaduke. <laughs> <laughs> <Oops. laughs> 
not a comic. <laughs> the dog? <laughs> that is a novel. That is a series of kind of children's novels. They made a movie. Big Marvel X Men. No, is book that... three, chapter eight. Olivia, I know what you're saying, and it's very like right there. Like I can think that Maybe you're. We'll it sounds. Well, very I'm talking familiar. about a Babylonian bastardization of the planet's actual name because it was a Babylonian emperor slash god. Yeah, that's why I recognize it because of my class. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the planet's actual name wasn't even Marduk. So I don't know why we're talking about all this. It was Nibiru. Nibiru. This planet has a long elliptical orbit stretching around the sun and out into deep space beyond the limits of Pluto's orbit. Every 3,600 years, Marduk slash Nibiru, who are the same planet, completes its path around the solar system. And several passes ago, this planet was responsible for the formation of our planet Earth. The Earth was, says Sitchin, originally the planet Tiamat. Tiamat. Yeah, I believe that's an Earth goddess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the tale of Tiamat and Marduk's encounter is recorded in ancient mythology. Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, formed the Earth by slaying the goddess Tiamat, who was a great sea monster, and whose body he used to form the heavens and the Earth. I believe the Mayans have a very similar tale about yeah. the formation of, of the Earth. How about the Norse folks? Did we have to kill the goddess to create the earth? Yes. Well, right. it's the, the, the giant Ymir. His body's torn apart, and so, like, his blood is the rivers, the, his teeth are the stones, his skin is, uh, like, the... Or his limbs are the trees, like, things like that. So we killed a guy. A giant. Hashtag feminism. An evil giant. Uh, so, uh, these events, says Sitchin, are actually a cosmic collision. All of these mythologies are reflecting a cosmic collision. An unstable solar system made up of the sun and nine planets was invaded by a large comet-like planet from outer space. It first encountered Neptune as it passed by Uranus, the giant Saturn, and Jupiter. Its course was profoundly bent inward towards the solar system's center, and it brought forth seven satellites. It was unalterably set on a collision course with Tiamat, the next planet in line. Tiamat was much larger than present-day Earth. Initially, Marduk did not smash into the ancient planet, but one of its satellites did, cracking it in half, so a moon slammed into it, one of Marduk's moons as it was passing by Earth. Or Tiamat, I guess, in this case. Then Marduk returned on a second cycle, another 3,600 years past, to separate the halves by colliding with Tiamat directly. The first half became the Earth, with the great fissures ultimately filling with water to form the oceans. If you think about those deep oceans, they're just big holes, right, in the crust of the Earth. Marduk then broke up the second half into what we now call comets and asteroids. Asteroids form the belt between Earth and Mars, and the comets join Marduk's orbit, shooting off into deep space, or deep solar system. Comets orbit the Sun in the same direction as Marduk, counterclockwise as opposed to the planet's clockwise motion, and they do so in a wide ellipsis, which is what Sitchin is saying Marduk does. These collisions caused a shift in Earth's orbit and created a situation in which the planets would no longer collide. Thank goodness. But they would continue to pass near each other every 3,600 years, creating an opportunity for Mardukian or Niburian who Sitchin calls the Nephilim, talking about the aliens, the, the residents of the planet Nibiru, uh, it'll create an opportunity for them to come to Earth. I realized I've seen that name on Bibliotheca Pleiades, my website. 
your website? Well, it's not mine, but I feel like not that many people visit it. Well, now they will. Nephilim, that, that, that's an interesting an thing because there's the realm of Nephilim in Norse mythology, which is this frosted over like planet. Right. I don't, I mean, it might be intentional. Sitchin is very well read. Oh. He's well, got he's... a Blavatskyan character to him. He's, he's steeped in many different traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with a, a far more focused project than Blavatsky. Uh, and I say that um, preferring Blavatsky to Sitchin. <laughs> I think her broad-mindedness was her saving grace. Are they, are they like kind of like angels, sort of, right? They are going to literally be angels. Right. Okay. But if by angels you mean extraterrestrials. Well, I guess within this theory. Yes. So the Nephilim live much longer than us because 3,600 Earth years equates to a single year for them. They also evolve much earlier than us and have developed technologies far superior to ours, which allows them to visit Earth and then return to their home planet. When Marduk slash Nibiru nears Earth, our Nephilim launch a ship that orbits the Earth's atmosphere and serves as an extraterrestrial base of operations. From the ship, the Nephilim descend in smaller crafts, to Earth. Sitchin argues that they arrived during the Ice Age and stayed until the Deluge, a mythological event that probably has a correlation in actual events on Earth. Our listeners will be familiar with Noah's Flood and also the various versions of this that we discussed, including the the end of Atlantis in Blavatsky's book, Secret Doctrine. Enlil, the Sumerians' chief god, later worshipped by the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Hurrians, who never got anywhere slowly, was the leader of the sorry, was the leader of the Earth expedition. He brought advanced tools like a communication device that he used to talk with the satellite spacecraft orbiting the Earth. You better gird your loins for this. This communication device became the Ark of the Covenant, when it was passed on to humankind. Enlil's... Everyone's just good with that? Yeah. That's all Indiana Jones was looking for, was his, uh, you know, Star Trek, you know, communication device. He wanted to talk to Captain Kirk. So there were... There were were two Indiana Jones movies about aliens. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Hmm. Enlil's mission on Earth was to mine for for minerals, specifically gold. Everyone wants gold. It's the best. It's so cool. Even the aliens. It's so, you can make engagement rings with it. Ooh. And computer chips. Ooh. And engagement rings. Oh. And computer chips. Oh, okay. Yeah. So just those two things. I yeah. think so. I don't think it's really very useful. I think it's a, a pretty good conductor of electricity. But, uh, that seems maybe right. I think there's copper? easier ways What's to copper? do it. Oh, we just you just did this. Yeah, we just went through all this. So, the Anunkai are an underclass of Nephilim who are the subordinates responsible for handling the mining operations. So Enlil is your your master commander, who has a bunch of other commanders, and then he's got these guys underneath of those commanders, the underclass, the serfs of the Nephilim. But, you know, still, like, astronaut-level serfs, so... Does he think that they're snake people? No, but no snake people in this, I'm sorry Sometimes to tell you. Sometimes they get called snake people. The underclass? No, the... Uh, oh, the upper, non- the commanders. Nanaki. Oh, the, anu- non- the Anunkai. Yeah. Why? 
they just a certain they get talked about in reptilian circles a lot. But aren't the snake people usually the higher ups, the secret occult masters in a Blavatsky universe? That's who we're talking about, not it the depends. not the grunts. Uh, These guys are in the mines. About what they think. <laughs> I don't think they're literally. The Anunkai Sitchin says they're not literally doing the labor, but they're operating the machines that are doing. Oh the yeah, labor. no, they were like more of like the head. They were like more in charge than not. No, these charge. guys are underneath because we got yeah. this whole class of god of Nephilim on top of them. Yeah, but when, when I say God, we have to bear in mind that we have to relieve ourselves of all the impressions of God and its spiritual connotations. These are just highly evolved people with very good technology. They're just like us, really. They don't have any advanced spiritual, psychic, or any of that sort of stuff does not carry along with Some them. Some people, like, they get brought into machine elves. Like... The Anunkai? Mm-hmm. Like, some people say that's who they're talking to when they're talking to that alien, like, all-knowledgeable thing. Which yeah, not these really guys, though. Here. They're really just guys who uh, operate forklifts. Mm. That's interesting. Yep. I mean, super cool forklifts. Sick. Sick-ass forklifts. <laughs> but just, that's all. Sick-ass forklifts. <laughs> <laughs> so the Anunkai uh, arrive along with Enlil in, and the other commanders in parties of 50. And they gradually raise the number of extraterrestrial visitors to Earth to 600. Eventually, though, these guys we've been talking about, the miners, the Anunkai, get tired of doing the grunt work. And they mutiny. Yeah, mutiny! This is dramatic. This book is not without drama. The commanders respond by initiating a new project to create a worker to serve them. Can anyone guess who that new worker will be? Wait, Adam? It's us, yeah. That's, Here we are. That's Gnosticism. It's like the same thing, kind of. That we've been made to well, mine for gold? The Archons made us to work for them and to be their food and their slaves. Oh, no, they're not going to eat us. Well, the reptilians wanted to eat us. Hmm. Evolution cannot account for the appearance of Homo sapiens, which happened virtually overnight in terms of the millions of years of evolution that is required, and with no evidence of earlier stages that would indicate a gradual change from Homo erectus. The hominid of the genus Homo is a product of evolution, but Homo sapiens is a product of some revolutionary event. So the Nephilim made up their minds to create humanity. Their plan was to genetically alter Homo erectus. So Homo erectus is wandering around, but Homo sapien has not arrived yet. Uh, Late to the party. Well, and, and this is part of Sitchin's point. We're not clear on how we got from Homo erectus to Homo sapien. I, I've made this point in other contexts, and it is a very good scientific and philosophical question we're always like yeah one day we were scum at the bottom of a pond and now we're us but there are these big leaps and if you walk through the amount of time it takes from what for a species to evolve which according to my biology professor friend is i think about a million years it feels like it's tough for us to get to this point in the time that we have with life on Earth. And one of those gaps is between Homo erectus and Homo sapien. We don't know how we got from our stooped-over hairy ancestor, theoretical ancestor, to us. So Sitchin says, well, I got you. Evolution took a big leap forward because these aliens stepped in and started experimenting on the cave people. So, the technique they used uh, included cloning and cell-fusion. Uh, now we're now we're looping back to the Raelians. The first experiments were not so successful and involved attempts to cross animals and humans in various combinations. 
It is quite conceivable that before resorting to the creation of their being in their own image, the Nephilim attempted to come up with a manufactured servant by experimenting with other alternatives, the creation of the hybrid ape-man-animal. The actual Babylonian historian Barossos talks about humans who have wings, multiple heads, the reproductive organs of both men and women, humans with goat legs, horns, hooves, hippo centaurs. This is a new one by me. Uh, they have the hindquarters of a horse. What's the hippo part? I think it has nothing to do with anything. There's no, you're just you. It's like you, Bree, walking around, but instead of a butt, you have a horse. But why does it say hippo in the front of it? Why is it not just a centaur? Rob just wanted to put it there. I don't speak Latin. No, that was Barosos. Oh. He did that. Oh, it's... I was just expecting a person who was from the waist down a hippo. Not even. You don't even have from the waist down. You still got all your human bits. It's just your butt is a horse. (laughs) Just the butt? Just the butt. The rest of you, you got your human genitals and legs and feet and everything. But then you got a horse butt and an extra set of legs in the back. Just the butt. Hippo centaur. That's your word of the day. Is that the origin of the Egyptian gods? Uh, arguably, these, these are all interconnected. And these are, there's an argument that Sumerian gods are the first gods, right? And that all gods descend from them, including the pantheon of Ra and Osiris and Isis. Because there's a lot of different uh, monsters and deities that are like Half part man, person. part animal. Yeah. Well, like right, in this case, these are not gods, though. These are just, like, abominations that the gods had. Yeah, like chimeras and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they made them through cloning and self-fusion. And this this historian, this actual Babylonian historian, recorded their existence. So, bizarre stuff. Uh, also, dogs with fish tails, horses with dog heads. Ooh, I like those the things. dogs with fish tails. Uh, I just, so, those are all the cool ones. There are others, but those were the cool ones, like picked out so these various beings were not up to the task of running and working the mining operation imagine that because you had this extra butt that you didn't know what to do with that's not going to be useful so too thick right too thick there's too much how are you even gonna get in the mine with that or dogs with fishtails like what what are you gonna do with that what are you gonna do with a dog with a fishtail how's that gonna mine for gold wait so you have two butts no, no, you have the one butt. Your human butt has been replaced by a horse butt. Okay, because I was really confused on how the bathroom would work with that one. Just a horse bathroom. Two butts. Okay. One butt. Thank one you butt. for clarifying. So they, <laughs> I'm glad we spent some time on that. Uh, <laughs> I think it was worth it. So the Nephilim are like, boy, all these crazy fish dog things, they're not helping us mine for gold at all. What were we thinking? putting a dog and a fish together and expecting it to mine for gold. We need to fix this. We need to come up with something smarter, sleeker, and more like us. So they fertilized one of the female cave women's ovum with extraterrestrial sperms and implanted it into the womb of the goddess Ninti. Bree is not having that. Not having that cocktail. No, I'm really not. <laughs> well, you're not the goddess so Ninti. They took one of the cave woman's eggs and they put it in the goddess with the sperm. Why didn't they just knock up the cave woman? Because she's not a goddess, I guess. Yeah, I think we she need the goddess. She wouldn't be represent. Re- Why are aliens abducting a representation humans now? Of I don't goddess. think the cave woman would be able to bear the child. As uh, part of the argument, only a Nephilim womb could bear a Nephilim child, even a partially Nephilim child. Hmm. I'm sure they tried various ways of doing this. This was the best approach. Adapa 
transliterated to Adam in the Hebrew Bible, they cloned uh, from uh, him. He was the first guy. And then they cloned the original in both male and female versions in the wombs of 14 birth goddesses. So we got a whole team. 14 birth goddesses full of Adam's clone. Adam was that first guy in the Ninti. Having created humankind, the next order of business was to destroy it. As one does. <laughs> right, so when you think about the Genesis story, from Adam to... It's all just Genesis. There's like a whole bunch of the rest of the Bible. But you got Noah and Adam. That whole line gets done in a few chapters, really. Same situation here. Now, no sooner do we create humanity than we've got we to blink it out of existence. This is the deluge, or as I like to call it, Apocalypse 1.0. So the humans, being genetically modified, hybrids that we were, we were incapable of producing, reproducing with each other, because hybrids can't generally reproduce. There's something about mules that he writes into this book. I don't entirely understand it, but apparently a mule, isn't a mule a cross between a... It's a horse and a, and a horse. horse donkey. and a donkey, but if you put a mule with a mule, you can't get another mule. No. Yeah, the same situation for the humans. I mean, whatever we were. The Homo sapien. We could not reproduce because we were hybrids with the Nephilim. What we had to do was uh, have lots and lots of sex and not worry about it. Boy, that's rough. <laughs> could right. be worse. Could be worse. That is, until our extraterrestrial masters, seeing how hot we were on account of the fact that they made us look an awful lot like them. They were like, well, these guys are pretty hot. They look... Look at them. They look like us. We're, we're pretty hot. And also those guys. Uh, they decided it would be fun to uh, give, them, give us some sweet, sweet Nephilim lovin'. Give us some sweet, sweet Nephilim lovin'. Sexing us up. So the Nephilim are, are represented in a game series that I play, Diablo where they are the children of angels and demons. and Angels and demons? That's yeah. not very Enochian of them. In this universe, the angels are beings of pure good, and demons are beings of pure evil, and the Nephilim are more powerful than both of them because they contain both. Are they like good. fallen angel kind of deal? No. Oh. No. Do they sex cave people? Um, they sex angels and demons. Oh. Oh, they get the best of both worlds. Where yeah. are the cave people in all this? They're actually the original humans. Who is? The Nephilim. Oh. Well, how do you like that? Enki, brother of Enlil, and a kind of prototype for the central god's alter ego. So we have various versions of this. Bri is familiar with the alter ego of the central god in oh, the Norse tradition. Oh, yes. Famously called, who is... Oh, well, Alter okay. ego, trickster, god. Loki. Loki. There he is. Boy, oh. I had to drag that out of her. I'm sorry. Uh, arguably, Neptune, god of the ocean, is the version with the Zeus in the Greek pantheon. We have his brother, Neptune, is sort of like hanging out in the sea and doing whatever the heck he does. Uh, that's, that's Enlil and Enki. So we have Enlil, Odin god, Zeus god, master god, and then we have the brother who's just got like, you know, the weird side job and does all kinds of funky stuff when his brother's not looking. So that's Enki. Enki's our our weird side god. So he actually created the means for the human Nephilim interbreeding to happen and probably or may have initiated it himself. 
This might have involved altering the genetic code of the humans, or maybe just having sex with them at all. Maybe they could always breed with the Nephilim, just not with each other. And by they, I mean us. So, either way, humans and Nephilim started interbreeding, interbreeding like, like wildfire. They were just going at it night and day. And they were having a great time just deteriorating the pure blood of the extraterrestrials in their orgies. And leading the Nephilim to conclude that humanity had to be wiped out. Because there were all, all these impure things. Well, they shouldn't have been having sex with us. They just couldn't keep their hands oh. off us because of how hot we are. I mean, look at us. But we gotta be taken out because of what they did? I agree that it's unfair. Mm. All we were being was hot. That's all we were It's doing. like canceling it's like the Victoria's Secret me. fashion yeah. show. Same thing. Oh, wait. We we went two different places. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't actually have strong feelings about the Victoria's Secret fashion show. I don't think I've ever watched it. But it's kind of like that. They, we got canceled. It mostly got canceled because of the trans thing, though. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Hmm. They didn't weren't going to have a trans person? Uh, the CEO was like, a trans person will never be in a Victoria's Secret show. Oh, they showed him. The Ice Age was reaching an end, and the glaciers were about to crack apart and initiate worldwide flooding. The Nephilim decided the way to solve this human interbreeding problem was just to beam the heck up to their satellite and leave the rest of us to die. So, it was going to correct itself, really. That seems right. Go ahead and let us drown. Uh, Tricky Anki, though... Our brother God disagreed with the Nephilim's decision, like you do, and sought out a human man, Utnapishtim, who appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh. is the prototype of Noah. I mean, that might be hot take, but sort of the same guy. The Hindus have the same Manu. There's a, there's a version of, of this guy in, in all these different traditions where there is a flood somebody gets the word from the god Vishnu, or in this case, Enki, you got to do something about this, or you're going to drown. So he told Utnapishtim, our Noah, of the impending flood and instructed him to build an ark. Utnapishtim asked a crew of craftsmen to help him build it, claiming that it was for the gods, but saying nothing of the flood, because he didn't want to freak people out. You're going to cause a panic. Then they wouldn't have built it. (laughs) Why not? Because they would have been freaking out. Yeah, they would have been too busy freaking out. Guys, can you calm down and build this? (laughs) Ah, I'm just freaking freaking out here. But when the flood came, uh, this is what a cool guy Utnapishtim is. He snuck the craftsmen on board, even though he wasn't supposed to, because they helped him build it, and he felt bad. Uh, He also brought his family and representatives from each of the Earth's species. He didn't need to bring more than one, though, because they have the ability to... Oh, clone that. Just clone the crap out of them. Yeah, so you don't need two by two. That's nonsense. We have cloning. When Enlil found out that some of the humans survived, he was pissed. Hmm. But Enki described how ingenious Utnapishtim had been in building his ark, and Enlil said, All right, I guess we'll keep humans then. You deserve it. Yeah, you earned it. Yeah, you guys, you crazy guys. We wanted you to drown, but you didn't, you little scamps. All right, fine, I guess you can live. Can I keep him? Okay, so the question becomes, for how long? Do we get to live, Father Enlil? In the somewhat misleadingly titled conclusion to his series, End of Days, 
Don't ask me why it's, it's misleading right now, but we'll get there. Sitchin argues that there have been a series of cataclysms since the famous deluge, e- e- deluge, each timed to the interactions between the roaming planet Nibiru and our home planet Earth. Nurgal! Remember Nurgal? Why is that familiar? We've talked about Nurgal before, uh, when we talked about the Babylonians. Like was that demonology? Nurgal? Yeah. I yeah. That, At I that time, we did not it. know who Nurgal was, but Nurgal's kind of a big deal in the Sumerians. You hadn't taken the class yet, Bree. You hadn't learned no, much about but Sumeria really yet. I really hardcore made fun of his name. Yeah, Nurgal. Well, now you know all. Did you re- learn about Nurgal? Yeah, yeah he's yeah. a big deal. <laughs> So, God of the Underworld, at the time, yeah, we were like, oh, it's silly Nurgal, but he's he, come, he came back. Nurgal came back for us, which is a lesson Aww. that we need to be cool to Nurgal. So, uh, he took control of seven nuclear weapons. So, FYI, yes, be super cool to Nurgal, because the Nephilim, apparently for some reason, brought nuclear weapons with them to Earth that Nergal got his hands on, and then he wielded them in a war between the gods. Enlil, the great leader of the gods on Earth, fell into conflict with Marduk, son of his uh, brother and rival Enki. Nergal, who was another of Enki's sons, sided with his uncle Enlil against his father Enki and brother Marduk. Got me so far? So we got uh, yeah. Daddy Enlil, and he's with the nephew Mar uh, Mardu. Uh, no, no, no. He's with nephew Nergal. And then we got Daddy Enki with son uh, Marduk. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. two and two. But guess who's got all the nukes? Nergal. Everyone rushed Nergal. for the mountains where they were hiding the nukes, and Nergal was like, "Got here first. They're mine, gotcha. bitches." Uh, and yes, because, bitches, he destroyed the whole of the ancient world as it existed in 2024 with these nuclear weapons. Oh, okay. Nergal took it out. He nuked everybody. Apparently, 2024, there's some evidence that there was a great cataclysm among the ancient peoples. Um, and these events were actually recorded in the Bible as, can you guess? The destruction of... Starts with uh, Sodom and ends with a... There it is, Sodom and Gomorrah. So the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah were act, was actually Nergal nuking the ancient world. Huh. So that marked the end of the Sumerian and Akkadian empires and the beginning of the Babylonian and Assyrian empires, 2024. Nergal's plan to destroy and prevent a, the dawn of a new age didn't work out very well since nuclear weapons are not especially precise instruments and people managed to survive enough to start brand new civilizations, namely Babylon and Assyria. Hmm. Oops. Nergal, swing and a miss, my friend. We'll catch you next time. That's it for Nergal. Say goodbye to Nergal. Oh, bye, Nergal. See him again next Sorry time. Sorry I made fun of you. <laughs> so, Can you stop blowing us up? Thanks. Marduk survived and went on to replace Enlil, ushering out the Sumerian Age of the Bull and inaugurating the Babylonian Age of the Ram. Meanwhile, the Jews were preparing for the return of Anu, or Yahweh, as the planet Nibiru had begun making its way back to Earth. Anu is the god who's running things back on Nibiru, home planet, Uh, so that's essentially Yahweh. And the Jews are not interested in all these gods fussing around on Earth. They want to get back to Anu. So, the planet isn't Marduk. Well, it is and it isn't. It's named after him. See, now you're, you're beginning to get at the complications in Sitchin's argument there, John. Very perceptive of you. It both is the planet and is an actual literal person, a Nephilim. 
It is both things. And yet the mythology does not differentiate Marduk from Marduk in any way. Marduk is always Marduk. So Sitchin's argument is already beginning to unravel. So he is both a person and the planet simultaneously. Yes. But when he's the planet, he has a different name. Except that he doesn't. Yeah, he, yes, you're right. The planet has a different name than the planet, which is its name. Nice. Yes. Oh, I see what you're saying. So when Marduk is slaying Tiamat for the Sumerians, or in the Babylon, for the Babylonians, it's just Marduk. And then it's still Marduk when he's doing all this stuff founding Babylon. But John's pointing out that in one story he was a planet, and in another story he's an alien. Oh. Sitchin does not get into these complexities. Failing in the argument, for sure. So working through the Ark, back to the Jews, working through the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which, again, is a communication device that we use to talk to the Nephilim, the Jewish King David received the plans for the temple that Yahweh wanted him to build in Jerusalem, and his son Solomon carried out these plans, constructing the temple in which the prophets would communicate with God, right, in the, in the Holy of Holies, and that God could use as a landing sh- site for his skyship. That that did not make it into the Song of Songs. Can you just say that one more time for me? So the the temple was the place where you could communicate with God and that God could use as a landing site for his skyship. Why does God need a skyship? Because God is an alien like you and me. He's got to get around somehow. Jerusalem, he's not God. I mean, he's not the way we conceive of God. All of our spiritual connotations... I will, I promise you, I will, I will wreck this very soon. I'm about to wreck it all. This is hurting me. But I got to finish setting it up before I can knock it down. It's just like his child in blocks. John has already begun knocking. Yes, it's true. You can't set up a block before she swoops in and knocks them all down with glee. Uh, But John's already been knocking down some blocks here. So this tower's teetering. Uh, So... Jerusalem wasn't the only city vying to receive the gods on their return. Nebuchadnezzar, emperor of Babylon, swept into Jerusalem, captured it, and 11 years later destroyed Solomon's temple in order to assure that Babylon itself would be the landing site. So there you go. If you want to get God to land in your town, destroy the temple he demanded be built in his name, and then tell him he's got to go to your temple. God loves that. He's going to be like, damn it. This is very sarcastic advice, friends. Anyone out there listening, thinking of building a temple, don't destroy other people's temples. God does not like that. Don't take his parking space. No, don't take God's parking space. Don't be like, hey, we, we've got you a better parking space over here. Isn't that cool? Because when God really liked the first one, he's yeah. going to keep parking there no matter what. God is God. He, he's picking his, his top choice first. But you just said he's not God. Well, I mean... Uh, but he is, but he's not. He's, he's got nukes. He's a planet. The ancient peoples of the world were wrong about God's return. In fact, the Nephilim lingering on Earth, including Enlil and his son Sin, be- beamed back up to the mothership. Sin or Nana was one of Enlil's sons and was worshipped primarily in the cities of Ur and Haran. And when the Babylonians invaded and captured Haran, Sin packed his bags and zipped off into outer space. So, they thought that God was coming, but God was actually leaving. When the planet (laughs) passed again, God was packing his stuff and heading out of town. In South America, and this is how God did it. Ready? God goes to South America. In South America, the Incas were also attempting to receive the gods with their Nazca lines. These are famous, enormous shapes covered in stone. Have you seen these? John's nodding appreciatively. They're sort of like crop circles, but they're more permanent. Oh, I've seen them on the History Channel. On the bloody History (laughs) Channel, yeah. Explore your world. What is a History Channel? Yeah. 
Yeah, Explore know. our nonsense. These enormous spider and bird shapes were actually landing sites for spacecraft, said 100 History Channel specials. When the Babylonians destroyed the temple at Jerusalem, which the gods were going to use to beam back up to the mothership, they traveled to South America and beamed back up to the mothership. So humans keep building these towers, being like, God's coming down, God's coming to us, and God's just making an exit plan. Hmm. Anu on home planet is sending the plans to King David and Solomon to build the temple so his son Enlil can get back home. They think Anu's coming down. Nope. Not going to happen. So we've got a couple of end of days so far. We've been through some ends of days. We've been through the deluge yeah, and when? we've been through the okay, nuclear yeah. disaster. Right. And now we've been through the God's departure. Those are all various different ends of days. So we're good now? Unfortunately, we are, because Sitchin does not give us any details about our end of days, about the next end of days. Oh. Uh, And that is why I said his title was very misleading. Right. He offers us no vision of our own apocalypse. The only thing he'll commit to, commit to saying, is that if the gods made their departure from Earth around 560 BCE most recent end of days, the home planet of our extraterrestrial creators should be back around Earth's orbit uh, around the year 3000. So... That's coming up. Sort of, of. yeah, kind (laughs) of. My first thought was the Jonas Brothers song. Been to the... We can't sing it here. Oh, wait, no, we can't. Damn it. You all know. You either know know or you don't. the year 3000. In the year 3000. Oh, that was... That was kind of like... I don't know any Jonas, Jonas Brothers, Brothers songs. That was my own song. Maybe they knew. I think there's a SNL skit that they say that. I think the Jonas Brothers knew. Zechariah Sitchin's theories are highly speculative. They're also deeply creative, and they're sourced in a way that we might say gives them more authority than they're due. But nevertheless, it makes us think twice about dismissing Sitchin out of hand. He knows stuff about ancient Sumer, and he knows enough not to make predictions about the future because he's really an expert, uh, expert-esque on the past. Without thinking too much into it, uh, I can actually find some basic flaws on the surface of things. To begin, to John's point, sometimes the gods are planets... Sometimes they are literal UFO knots or extraterrestrials. Why would the Sumerians write their mythology literally, except in the case of cosmic events? So you have to bear in mind, for Rael and for Sitchin, all these myths are literal. They're not figurative. They're not talking about the spirit. They're not talking about the unconscious. They're not talking about the fate of humanity. We're talking about actual human beings doing stuff. Except, as John's pointed out, in the rare case when those human beings are planets, and then we're talking about planets doing stuff. So why would all of their mythology be literal, except for the actions of the planets? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes they represent planets, sometimes they just represent themselves. If they wanted to talk about planets, and we're saying the Sumerians wrote everything literally about things actual breathing living beings did they would have just talked about planets if this seems nitpicky a bigger question is how the nephilim knew and passed on the events surrounding the creation of earth given that they evolved long after marduk's moon crashed into tiamat forming the earth let's get to this 
No one was there to watch Marduk crash into Earth, or they would have died. There would have been an incredible planetary extinction as one planet hit another for thousands and thousands and millions of years after this cosmic collision. Nobody was there. So who recorded this in such a way that it could be passed on to our myth writers in ancient Sumeria? Big plot hole there, too. Astronomers, namely C. Leroy Ellenberger, have asked how the Nephilim survive on a planet whose elliptical, this is the most obvious one, whose elliptical orbit takes them into deep space, far from the heat of any star, spending, according to Ellenberger, 99% of their time beyond the limits of Pluto. Sitchin suggests radiation and a thick atmosphere hold in the sun's heat for the brief 1% of the time that it's passing near the Earth, but these sources could never be enough to sustain life in any meaningful way if we just do the science. Feel better, John? Just a little bit. All right, well, I'm going to make you feel worse. Because uh, we're going to move on from Sitchin. I'm going to come back. I'm going to take one more pass at Sitchin, sort of like Marduk did with Tiamat. Uh, but before I oh. do that, yeah, that was just my moon satellite slamming into Sitchin. Uh, but before I do that, I want to talk about Charles Fort. I want to take a couple of pages now for Charles Fort here, because he deserves some attention. Uh, and we can't really understand Sitchin or Rael without Charles Fort. He's sort of the end of our story today, the, the origin point for me of these ideas. The notion that extraterrestrials travel close to the earth and take the opportunity to visit on occasion can be traced at least in part to our turn-of-the-century iconoclast charles fort fort was born in albany new york in 1874 and was able to devote himself full-time to writing as a result of an inheritance that he'd gotten from his uncle he was an autodidact and a maverick also a pioneer in the world of paranormal theory i like reading him very much Compared to Sitchin, Fort was far more circumspect and modest in his claims, which is part of why I liked reading him. That's appropriate for any paranormal theorist. Despite his much more modest tone, he's a very clear influence on the alien-based philosophy and religion that has followed him. Fort's Book of the Damned is a remarkable and humbling effort, cataloging more or less all the inexplicable stuff that has fallen out of the sky over the hundred years before Fort published his book in 1919, and sometimes even before then. Fort starts by laying out his theory that science is largely an effort to categorize things we don't understand, and that categorization is a fairly ridiculous thing to waste our time on. Whenever we draw a line and say this is an animal and this is a vegetable, or this is yellow and this is red and this is orange, the line is always necessarily going to be arbitrary and doesn't prove anything in particular. Let's just think about this. Is a sea sponge an animal or is it a plant? I believe we've decided it's an animal. But why? But who? And who cares? I I literally talk about this all the time, how it's so stupid that everything around us is just... The name was created by someone. And we've said this color is yellow, and as you add a little red to it, it becomes orange, and then we add a little red to it, and it becomes red. But when is it red, and when is it orange, and when is it yellow? When do we draw the line between yellow and orange? This is Fort's point. All we're doing is drawing a bunch of lines that are meaningless, because we arbitrarily decided what was yellow, red, and orange in the first place. Because there was a time we didn't even have color. Like, we didn't have a name for colors. Arbitrarily drew lines all over the place. So it's not really a postmodern point about language so much, but it's absolutely a point about categorization. That all we're doing in science is categorizing a bunch of stuff to make ourselves feel better, but it's not really contributing anything to the way we understand any of it. 
This whole project, project of categorization is designed to also leave out the things that science can't explain, the outliers that they simply ignore because they can't find a place for them in their arbitrary system, or they explain them away using the system that they've created. Damned phenomena in his book of the damned, are those things that science explains away in its own terms, even though its own terms are woefully inadequate for the job. Let's take meteorites, for example. The notion that they came from space used to be laughed at as a ridiculous idea. They were explained away as having been kicked up by lightning strikes or spat out in volcanic eruptions because that was all science was willing to deem reasonable. Until scientists accepted that it's possible for meteorites to actually arrive from outer space. And now we have a category for it. So, let's hear from Fort. Nothing has ever been finally found out, because there's nothing final to find out. It's like looking for a needle that no one ever lost in a haystack that never was. Okay, so, uh, back to that stuff falling out of the sky. Fort pulls up reports of elephant-sized hailstones in India and saucer-sized snowflakes in Tennessee. These are strange, but still fairly normal compared to the yellow substance that smelled like charred animal flesh that fell out of the sky in Italy, Spain, and France, all in the year 1870, a black rain that fell in Ireland, Scotland, and the Cape of Good Hope, and the red rain that fell in Australia and Europe in February 1903. I think myself that in 1903 we passed through the remains of a powdered world, left over from an ancient interplanetary dispute brooding in space like a red resentment ever since. The yellow and black were the remains of a pulverized spacecraft, says Fort. Okay, because I've heard about those rains and... huh. Yeah, so the red rain is just this looming cloud in space of, uh, you know, some sort of cosmic disaster. And then we've got yellow and black rain coming from pulverized spacecraft over the Earth's surface. It gets stranger from there. Fort records a series of episodes in which, follow me here, fish, adolescent toads and frogs between one month and two months old, no older, no younger, and an unidentifiable space jelly appear across the globe. John, you've heard of these things? Oh, yeah. I've yeah. heard of this, too. Where, where, where do you guys, where have you come across this? Do you, can you remember? There was a book I had, like a coffee table book about a whole bunch of paranormal stuff, and there was a whole, a whole several pages on that. On space jelly? Or uh, adolescent Just all frogs? the different rains. The rains. The, the, the weird rains. rains that have happened. How about you guys? Any, it, um, can you mine's from like podcasts that I've listened to about uh, yeah, mysterious so universes talking about this. Alien stuff. Yeah. Aliens, yeah. Well, let's see what Fort has to say. April 1836 in Allahabad, India, a fall of chalwa fish that turned to blood when fried in a pan. That's yeah. weird. <laughs> right. They were like, ooh, fish, let's eat them. Also, props to those people to eat fish that, that came fell from out the of the sky. sky, sky I mean, fish. I would. I love that. March 3rd, well, they tried. They didn't end up doing it because right. they turned to blood. March 3rd, 1879, in Olympia Springs, Kentucky, there were beef flakes that Wait, fell from the sky. It's like fish food. <laughs> like oh. we're being fed fish food beef from flakes. the sky. Yeah. That's a nice idea. Uh, a mem- you, wait, just hold that thought. A member of the French Academy brought in some atmospheric jelly for analysis. It was never spoken of again. <laughs> they said never. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. Sacre bleu. Mon Dieu. Take this space jelly from away, away from us. 
Germany, 1844, a witness saw something luminous fall from the sky and searching the area found, yet again, a mass of gelatinous matter. In August 1894, in Bath, England, jellyfish the size of a shilling descended to earth. Fort is famously sarcastic in his work, a kind of academic nihilist dismissing humanity's impotent attempts to make sense of our vast and mysterious cosmos in any conceivable way. He puts out theories, but in a tone that most interpreters read as a kind of satire. I shall have to accept myself that a gelatinous substance has often fallen from the sky. Or is that far off or far away, the, the whole sky is gelatinous? I think myself that it would be absurd to say that the whole sky is gelatinous. It seems more acceptable that only certain areas are. His most infamous of these sorts of explanations is his Super Saragasso Sea. The notion is that there is somewhere aloft a place of origin of life relatively to this Earth. Whether it's the planet Genesistrine, or the moon, or a vast amorphous region superjacent to this Earth, or an island in the Super Sargasso Sea, should perhaps be left to the researchers of other super or extra geographers. But if Fort is only pulling our leg about a Super Saragasso Sea, what is he willing to believe in? For the answer to that, we turn to yet another strange something toppling out of the heavens. Thunderstones. Thunderstones are carved stone objects that appear in largely uninhabited areas witnessed by indigenous peoples and farm workers across the globe falling through the air. In Central Africa, Malacca, Sumatra, and Java, for example, stone axes appear near or in trees that have been struck by lightning. Rocks with mysterious writing appear at various locations around the world, and Fort suspects these have been left by explorers from other worlds. And still, in our own heterogeneity, or unwillingness, or inability to concentrate upon single concepts, we shall, or we shan't, accept that, though there may have been a lost colony or lost expedition from somewhere upon this earth, and extra-mundane visitors can never get back, there have been other extra-mundane visitors who have gone away again. I think we're property. I should say we belong to something, that once upon a time this earth was no man's land, that other worlds explored and colonized here and fought among themselves for possessions, and that now it's owned by... something. There's, uh, Thunderstones and Pokemon, Rob. What's that like? What do they do? You need them to evolve certain Pokemon. Well, maybe you could get evolved if you got yourself a Thunder Axe. To, like, Thunder Olivia? I think to Axe Murderer Olivia. Oh. I'll take that, too. Here, Fort gets weird again. He attempts to connect the appearance of Sasquatch-sized footprints with the various traditions that hold belief in fairies. Follow me here. He hypothesizes the existence of two planets, both of which pass close to the Earth periodically. This should start to sound a little familiar. Fort calls these planets Monstrator, home of the extraterrestrial Bigfoot, and Elvera, home of the fairy folk. Monstrator and Elvera. Uh, we believe that we have fairies on Earth. We believe that we have Bigfoot on Earth. But the truth of the matter is, they're just extraterrestrial visitors whenever their planets get close to ours. That's why no one can find Bigfoot. Right? Because he's, he's just teleporting in and out. I to think his home planet. that's the stupidest thing I've ever that's heard you say. so funny. And again, because it's Charles Fort, we don't know if he means it. Yeah. He could just be pulling our legs about Elvera and Monstrator. A large satellite-like celestial body has been seen near Venus seven times since 1645, and Fort says this celestial body, called Neith, visits for a while and anchors and then goes away and comes back again. 
in the same vein, there's a hypothetical planet Vulcan orbiting between the Sun and Mercury. Urbain Leverrier, who calculated the position of Neptune, believed in the existence of Vulcan. On March the 22nd, 1877, he believed he would be able to see Vulcan through a telescope, but the planet did not appear. Fort says that Vulcan failed to appear because Leverrier believed there was only one Vulcan, a single planet, when in fact there were several, and these several Vulcans and Venus's satellite weren't actually planets or moons, but... Can you do this? What are they? They're not planets. They're not moons. They are... Spacecraft. Oh my god. (laughs) This raises the question, what exactly are these spacecraft doing in our neck of the galaxy? According to Fort, who takes a nascent collection of abduction stories into account, they're looking for us. Wait, so is the first part of what you said a fact about Venus? Uh, It's a fact that people have recorded this astrologically, or astronomically. Okay, so part of that is true. That's interesting. I wonder what that actually is, though. It's a kind of speculative astronomy because it's only been recorded intermittently. Oh. Yeah. Vulcan the same way. Theoretically disproven. I think that we're fished for. It may be that we're highly esteemed by super epicures somewhere. Makes me more cheerful when I think that we may be of some use after all. I think that dragnets have often come down and have been mistaken for whirlwinds and water spouts. And I have data that in this book I can't take up at all. Mysterious disappearances. I think we're fished for. That we're a planet kept for food that the aliens fish for us and that rain is our fish food the beef flakes yeah the beef flakes there you go see i told you it would all come together Uh. they're feeding us beef flakes and then they fish for us pull us up fort is far more speculative and far less sure of himself than sitchin he also has a much healthier sense of humor about all this Although I don't agree with all of Fort's conclusions, and by conclusions I mean something more like speculations, which is how Fort lays them out with a tongue wedged firmly in his cheek, or probably wedged firmly in his cheek, it's really hard to tell whether he means any of this or not. And for that reason, Fort is a man after my own heart. He tears apart simplistic and dismissive attitudes toward the legitimately inexplicable, and replaces them with ideas that are not necessarily better, but at least more honest in being wildly uncertain. See, for example, Monstrator and Elvera. His point is not necessarily that these planets exist, in my opinion, but rather that any explanation we've been offering is as ridiculous as Monstrator and Elvera. His influence is also at least a little problematic in that he sets a kind of extraterrestrial paradigm that Sitchin picks up. Visitors from outer space come to explain all things supernatural and paranormal, from poltergeists to Bigfoot. But unlike Sitchin, Fort is not convinced of his own ideas. He's just hoping to open up a conversation where all discussion has been systematically shut down. You ready for me to bring this on home? Knock those pins down? Finish it off? Yes, please. Okay. So, Fort's approach would have been a better approach for Sitchin, but perhaps not for the foundation of a religion, as in Ryle's case. It's hard to found a religion on, these things are ridiculous. Confessors, we need to breathe a sigh of relief that Sitchin's ideas are, as John began to point out, and hopefully I've driven home, a little too much to be believed. We have to worry about any project that reduces the 
gods to quasi-human astronauts. Sitchin, and more directly Rael, are essentially offering up a materialistic rethinking of religion. They create an atheistic undoing of a spiritual or non-material realm by other means, merging science and religion in a way that completely submerges any transcendent or non-material world into this one, in the form of advanced technologies like cloning and space travel. While we on this podcast tend to argue for the existence of non-material planes of being, or at least planes of being beyond what human beings have managed to comprehend so far, Sitchin and the Raelians, and to a lesser extent even Fort, demonstrate the power of the extraterrestrial to explain or explain away any spiritual dimensions of humanity. The desire for this kind of thinking, which is profound in popular culture, occupying, as we've joked about, uh, but seriously, whole channels on the cable dial, and flashing through bestseller lists, people have a thirst for this kind of thinking. This is another sign of the emptiness of straight atheist thinking and its prominence in our culture right now. Denying a non-material plane leaves us feeling hollow and alone, adrift in an empty Saragasso Sea. Extraterrestrials offer a semblance of depth that is on the surface satisfying, but only serves to loop us back onto ourselves. Our gods become more evolved versions of us, with technologies that resemble ours, brought to a kind of apotheosis. We're cut off once again from any greater mystery inside or outside of ourselves. We can think of the extraterrestrial as a complement to non-material belief. Phenomena that seem to suggest their existence or intervention in human affairs further demonstrate the short-sightedness or narrow-mindedness of empiricism as it exists today. This is the beauty of Fort, using the extraterrestrial to unpack strict empiricism and narrow-minded science. Extraterrestrials are, after all, a hallmark of paranormalism, along with ghosts and Bigfoot, but also, as Fort shows, they have the capacity to disappear their compatriots in the paranormal world by becoming our angels and demons and monsters that we might otherwise believe in. They threaten to become a theory of everything that transforms all outliers in the empirical realm into an extraterrestrial committing the exact same error that we accuse science of, of eliminating outliers, but in this case, by subsuming them in through speculative theory. Going all the way back to our Mayan episode, Jose Arguelles offers up a much friendlier take on the galactic visitor. For Arguelles, they intersect with a project to advance consciousness such that the natural human and not the technologized human is able to achieve an occult enlightenment through an elevated consciousness. While we question the cultural premises of Arguelles' ideas, the fundamental idea that human consciousness is a mysterious and powerful force that connects us to much vaster regions of being than our empirical science is willing to recognize is a central premise of our podcast here. In our reading of mythology, the Sumerian gods are some of humanity's most sophisticated articulations of the powerful inner forces within ourselves that potentially correlate to non-material, supernatural forces outside of ourselves. There is room, and potentially evidence, for extraterrestrials in human history and experience, and they may even help to explain some of the paranormal occurrences that academic science tend to, tends to dismiss as outliers. But it is too much to claim that they are the final explanation for everything. There is, finally, too much evidence for an occult or spiritual dimension to allow aliens to carry it all away into deep space. So you're not saying no to aliens? 
Uh, no, I, I, that would be against a uh, basic principle of, of the work that uh, I'm doing here, that they remain possible. We cannot dismiss them out of hand. We also can't turn them into super Reptiles. aliens. Well, whatever. A conspiracy theory, essentially. I mean, my thoughts on aliens are I'd like to think that they're there so that if we really shit the bed on our existence, there's something else out there to continue theirs. What if they already happened? Well, that's the thing is my in my head, it's possible that they could have happened or they're in the process of developing to happen. You know what I'm saying? I mean, aliens could just be as simple as there was life on Mars. Yeah. And at least if we screw up, there's still something out there superior that can continue to exist and maybe grow. Yeah, they don't know we're here, probably. Or inferior. Yeah. As long as it's out there. Yeah, that's, yeah. As long as it's not just a planet. As long as it's not just a giant hunk of rock moving through space. We really do exist under the premise, though, that if there is something else out there, it's coming for us. Like, that is just... Whenever we think aliens, our next step is, yeah. what does that mean for us? It's never... Yeah. I, I mean, theoretically, if you go to, like, a Hindu conception of the universe or a Vedic conception, there are multiple worlds and multiple planets with beings on them that we don't have to ever concern ourselves with, except if we get reincarnated there, I suppose. And I, th- I think us being so concerned about aliens coming has a lot to do with the fact that we feel like we have to be the superior race and the superior thing in the world and if there's something else out there that is possibly better than us that's threatening to us i think or the aliens are already here and they're in our government you just had to get that in didn't you i did it was a little bit building it was just like in there and surprised it took her this long bring us on home will you I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. All right, so our voices were entirely performed by Brandon Walls today. <laughs> he did uh, both Zechariah Sitchin and Charles Fort. Brandon, you just want to say goodbye to the people since uh, Brandon's been hanging out for the episode with us. Uh, hi, and goodbye. That was beautiful, Brandon. Wow. <laughs> Truly. The voice acting on that. <laughs> the voice was remarkable. It was beautiful. Uh, we've got uh, Brie Litterall sitting over there talking Sumerians with us. Yeah, I just realized the only time I did the metal thing was like way early on. Well, you're a little worn out from all those puppets earlier today. Yeah, you're not wrong. Johnny Cook, our patron progenitor. Howdy. Why does everyone always say hello at the end? Oh yeah, then you remember that we're leaving. I'm always friendly, Rob. Yeah, you are a friendly guy. That's why I think the aliens will keep you uh, as a pet. Uh, Olivia, our grandmaster. Don't forget the Eisenhower Treaty, guys. Lock your doors, your windows. We're all game. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order here, uh, saying goodbye, and I don't think you're game. On our next episode, uh, we are going to... It'll be my last episode in the Apocalypse series, but not the end of the Apocalypse series. We've got two, two more in to, to come here. Uh, I'm going to be talking cargo cults in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. And then uh, it's going to be exciting. Uh, it really is. It's going to be a fun episode. And then uh, Olivia is going to be doing Doomsday Cults, and then it's going to bring an end to this series. Doomsday! So, no, 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 no. Mark, Ooh, your, thank you. mark your calendars. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Uh, th- this podcast is recorded at the Scenic Cadby Theater, Chesapeake College on uh, uh, Maryland's Eastern Shore. Take care. <laughs>